Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm gonna have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. We also want to highlight some current exhibitions that we think you should check out. Today we're going to talk to visual artist Rachel Herrick. If you'd like to check out our work, please go to her website at rachelherrick.com or you can go to our website, which is don'tyoulietome.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Enjoy. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. Have we started recording work? I have to be an artist. I'm sorry. I'm going to be poor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, uh, I'm horrible. <laughs> so I, I, it's, it's not, 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 maybe. Oh, at some point I was talking to Tumbleweed and I asked him where Cowboy Bob was. <laughs> I thought it was Dickweed. Um, I mean, he's an <laughs> asshole, but most people are when you get down to it. They started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Am I getting paid for this? <clears throat> uh, he's the something at the whereabouts. Uh, no. No? No. Oh, you got your facts wrong. I think you made that up a little bit. Eventually, the hostages were on the moon. Wow. Sorry, let me back up. I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm-hmm. All right. It is, but less, less charming and more shit. Did you, were you? Well, I was a country music singer, and I was in a graffiti gang. That's when I started skateboarding. Hmm. The, the, I don't even know where, I don't know how to say it. Undoey. Undoey. <laughs> damn it, Warren. <laughs> oh, damn it, Warren. Yeah. Damn it, Rachel. Damn it. We're here with Rachel Herrick. She is amazing. She is a visual artist. And how would you describe your work at the VAE? I am the director of initiatives at the Visual Art Exchange, or VAE Raleigh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm the director of initiatives at VAE Raleigh, and I'm also a farmer and an artist. All right. I'm a little nervous about today's uh, interview because you and Warren are in a room together. It's severe animosity. I think it's born out of love. (sighs) I don't know what it is, but... But you guys make a special... We have a chemistry. Oh, you do. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you don't give Warren a microphone. I think this is a great format where I get to talk... And he don't get to say nothing. It's it's pretty nice. He I just have to look say. at him. He's scowling. He's shaking his head. He's saying it's not fair. You know what? Uh, it's real fair. It's real. It's real. Real it's fair. It's real. Real fair. Because people are <laughs> yeah. finally gonna get to know the truth. So let's begin. Yes. Again. Let's talk seriously about creativity. Mm. Mm. Now you come, as you said before, from Maine. I do. I do. I come from Maine. That is the only. Uh, New England state I have not been to, but I have this amazing visions of it, like uh, 
cider house rules and, <laughs> and, and things. What, lots of orphans. Lots of orphans. Lots of and cider. Lots of cider. What was it like growing up there? You know, uh, Maine is everything that, that the tourist uh, advertisements and, and postcards want you to think it is in spots. So I grew up on a farm in rural central Maine, up on top of a hill. And uh, it is it is beautiful, but it's also very economically depressed mm-hmm. and uh, very, I mean, working class would be optimistic to, to say mm. that there's a lot of poverty. My family was fortunate. We had a um, subsistence farm so we could grow what we needed. And But, you know, really just colorfully troubled people um yeah it was it was an incredible yeah really interesting childhood i can't say it's all it's beautiful or or rosy but but daggum it was character forming (laughs) right so yours (laughs) yours may be more of a stephen king type man i I think that would be uh yeah yeah i don't know yes (laughs) yeah little salem's lot little pet cemetery Mm. Yeah. I got I got a story about Pet Cemetery. Tell if me you, more. If you'll indulge me, I, I will. <clears throat> I I don't remember what year that came out, but however long after that, mm. when the when the VHS came out, when the oh, video the, the, the videotape. Oh my! I was sick one day and I was at home and my grandmother came by and me and my grandmother watched <laughs> Pet Cemetery together, <laughs> and I thought the whole time, you know. Uh, that she was going to be terribly disturbed by it, but she didn't react at all. But is then, your grandma from Maine? No, she's from Eastern North Carolina, oh, so thing. it's about same the same. Thing. Yeah. But then, like two days later, she called me and said, "Well, what happened to the little girl?" And so, mm-hmm. and, and I and apparently, if you think back, there's a little girl. They go to the grandparents' house. And then you don't ever see her again. So I thought that was so funny that she was like worried about this little girl when (laughs) everything else was didn't phase her. (laughs) Oh, that's really good. I have a different kind of pet cemetery story. Go for it. (laughs) So one of my my most vivid childhood memories growing up in Maine on a farm is that we had a pig who gave birth in February. And Maine in February is daggum cold. Mm -hmm. Like when you walk outside with your plastic grocery bags in Maine in February, the grocery bags shatter like ashes. Really? And your groceries go everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, that has really happened. That's crazy. It's very, very cold. So, um, so we had a pig give birth in February. That's way too early. We're mm-hmm. not, I don't really remember why it happened, but I remember getting out of bed in the morning, and my mom had already gone out to do the chores, and she had come in, and the whole litter of piglets had frozen solid. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And so one of my, my vivid childhood memories is coming downstairs and seeing f- frozen, stiff, dead piglets scattered around the house on all the floor heat registers because she was trying to thaw them out because it might bring them back to life like a goldfish like a goldfish (laughs) did it work (laughs) it did not (laughs) (laughs) warren was thinking that it was gonna work i was i know i could see the optimistic like twinkle (laughs) (laughs) well that was uh that was a good story yeah a little yeah. scary. That is growing up in Maine. I right. got lots of stories like that. Do you I, want I to want, make this a Halloween? Thing? I will look at my house. Halloween is the thing. 
Right? Yeah. So good. Oh, yeah. I got engaged to be married on Halloween. That makes sense. You were in costume, so she couldn't see you. Yeah, she thought I was someone else. Yes. Obviously. I heard that's how Warren got engaged. Warren uh, slash Warren came with a big dowry. (gasps) Is that what the kids call it these days? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, you grew up on a farm, and now you're farming again. I am. What's that all about? Um, You know, uh, working as an artist was always, uh, there were these moments in in graduate school. Graduate school was an amazing experience, uh, but I had a a couple professors uh, ask me some questions that were pivotal in some ways creatively. So one, um, one professor asked me, asked me slash the whole class, like, you know, why are you an artist? And the room, everyone in the room went around and said like, oh, cause I have to be, I have to be. Mm-hmm. And I, and I got around and I, and it was my turn. And I said, no, I don't, I don't have to be. <laughs> I just, I want to be mm-hmm. like, I, I'm good at it. it. It does. It, it's a way of communicating for me, but I do have other skills. And that's, that sort of sparked an interesting conversation about like what it means to have to make art. And for me, art is a tool. It's just, it's like having a big old toolbox mm-hmm. in your head. And so art was one of those tools. And farming is another one of those tools. Um, so then the other question in grad school that was asked was, you know, like, was to was designed to help me uh, get in touch with the kind of content that would really push me to a vulnerable place so that I would be making work that was raw and edgy and interesting. And the question was, what pisses you off? Mm-hmm. And at the time, and then following, I had no shortage of answers for the things <laughs> that piss me off. Uh, I have to Warren, say I'm a little surprised. I would say Warren yeah. is probably one, two, and three. Mm. But okay, so but then like three, four, and five were, um, you know, the ways that people mistreat each other and the way people miscommunicate and, um, and I I've been making work artwork about that for a really long time, and the goal was always to get back to farming because I really like the, the rhythm of it. Uh, It makes you really responsive and aware of of time and seasons and. Uh, you know, it just gives you a sense of agency that I think is lacking for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of my work was addressing anxiety and frustration and miscommunication, like I said, and um, going back to farming was a way of of addressing that in a different way than I had been with art. I think with, with my art, it was about drawing attention to the ways that we make ourselves anxious and we make ourselves uh, vulnerable and, uh, you know, sort of toxically reliant on each other. Uh, And farming is a, it's, it satisfies a lot of the same creative uh, problem solving things that I love about art. Uh, But it has this practical component uh, as well. And it's a skill set that I have. So, So you don't have to make artwork anymore. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, heck no. No. (laughs) No. Although, uh, so I've been on the farm a year, and I I have to say my art projects are are much smaller and more private in in scale these Mm. days. I don't, I'm not showing uh, work as much, but 
it's because my my whole life is completely different. Mm-hmm. And the farm has opened up so many opportunities for me as a as a human being. And I'm my list of things that pisses me off is much shorter. That's good. Uh, the our farm name is is Slow Farm because it's addressing the lifestyle that that we we hope for for ourselves and for for everyone. Like just slow down and and. But- take control over small parts of your life and you know enjoy that who is this we we're talking about? oh we uh it's my husband carl carl now see this is the main reason that i like you <laughs> is because someone like carl is obviously too smart to talk to someone like me <laughs> but because i know you i get to like talk to someone like that and he says phrases and things that I can't possibly comprehend with my small Eastern Carolina brain, <laughs> but uh, it makes me feel important and good. So thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> let me let me tell you that one of the best things about being married to an incredibly genius man is that you rarely have to talk smart around them because mm. he has to talk smart all the time. He's a history professor. Right. And uh, yeah, he has to talk smart all the time. So when he gets home, it's sort of like grunts. Like Gross. gesticulating, like me, give me beer, give me like, beer. Like I can, I can converse at that level. Mm-hmm. Makes, you can. It makes me feel smart too. That's it's good. Like, you want beer? I know what that is. I got that. I got that right there. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So the first thing I ever saw of yours was uh, the mocks at the old Flanders yeah. space, and uh, uh, I'll have to admit that I saw it, but a little bit before the public saw it. I worked across the street at CAM, and I would occasionally go over just to like see what was going on. And it was the Friday that it was opening. Oh my! And I came in, and there was a lot of rushing around. And my my first my first feeling was like I want to offer help, <laughs> but then I was like, if I say anything, someone's gonna yell at me. So I'm just gonna back <laughs> out of here and come back later when it's open. And then I came back later when it was open and was just blown away by it. Um, the attention to detail, the um, the variety of, I guess I would say artifacts, because that's yeah, a lot yeah. of what you're kind of referencing. Totally. It's just the, the, the way it's handled is just amazing. And I'm, I'm not sure I can describe the whole uh, <laughs> situation as well as you can. Can you talk about how yeah. that how that work started and and where it's gone yeah uh so what you're talking about is the museum for obese conservation studies or mocks mm-hmm. and uh this is a project that started in 2010 um and it started so um so you can you know you're here you can see me but people who aren't listening to me, i i'm a big girl and i have been for uh pretty much most of my life you know farm girls we're were big and uh so there was a lot of media scrutiny about obesity epidemics and a lot of uh rhetoric especially in like the 2008 9 10 range and not to say that it's gone away but uh but it's i think it's less the panic has lessened but anyway talking about fatness and and body size in terms of um medical catastrophes Mm -hmm. the obesity epidemic even just the word epidemic means a contagious medical calamity virusy flu thing that will kill us all right Right. i mean it's uh incredibly antagonistic and alarming and sensationalist like Mm -hmm. you know a lot of our um 
a lot of our our bullshit in our in our world but but especially medically and scientifically comes because the media boils it all down to sound bites right mm-hmm. it's about you know clicks and views and sales and ads and stuff like that so so stuff about correlations between diabetes and uh, excess adipose tissue uh, become boiled down to fat people are all exploding of diabetes all around the world. Mm-hmm. Aaron, <laughs> <laughs> exploding. Yeah, yeah. Just mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a big problem. But but as a fat person, uh, I found that really alarming. I did not like being told that I was gonna die every single day. It wears on a person. I reckon like, it would. Hey, you're you know. I mean, nobody wants to be told that. Like, although all of my medical numbers, my my blood tests, my blood pressure, my blah, 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 blah. They were all fine, except for the media saying that I was I was I was dropping dead mm-hmm. every single day. And and that was one of the things that pissed me off. Right. Don't don't tell me what I am. Mm-hmm. The the social perceptions of fat people as stupid and lazy and um unhealthy, like you know what? Nobody wants to be told what they are. Mm-hmm. We we very. I think most people want to believe that they can say who they are and be believed for for what they say they are. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that agency back, and I was angry at at the way um, our popular culture could dress up hateful stereotypes and rhetoric in and dress it up and like put it in a white lab coat and it became real mm-hmm. right so that was sort of where mocks sort of started to come from i i love nature documentaries um at the time i'm i'm watching i'm watching a lot of naked nature doc naked documentaries <laughs> nature documentaries <laughs> Oh, okay. Warren is correct. He says it's called porno. <laughs> I still think it's called nature documentaries, but uh, okay, Warren. I mean, that's a different kind of discovery channel, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so watching a lot of nature documentaries and I had felt sort of compelled to start sewing moo-moos as a, like a big like up yours to the system who's trying to tell me what, what I should be and, and what I should be is like the... You know, like the fat person who, like, fat people shouldn't show a lot of skin because that's mm-hmm. gross. So I decided I was going to wear the right uniform for a fat person. So, I was so gonna... this was made for yourself. Yes. Okay. I started sewing moo for myself. And and inside scoop, I'm real bad at sewing. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a long time to make a couple moo And I didn't really have a plan. So here I am. I'm sewing moo And I'm watching nature documentaries. And I start telling myself this story in my head about uh, like fatties in the mist, you know, sort of mm-hmm. like gorillas in the mist, but it's right. fat people in the mist. And that kind of cracked me up. And so then I imagined, um, I started to imagine fat people as at, like gorillas as, as Jane Goodall would, would describe them and right. as endangered and threatened. And they need our help because they're too stupid to take care of themselves and, you know, stupid obesists is what I started to call it. And then I finished my moo-moos and I didn't really know where that, I didn't, like I said, I started the moo-moos without a goal. Mm -hmm. I finished them without a goal and I put them on and, uh, and I started that, that, I didn't know where that was going. And then I started to miss the story that I had been telling myself about these dumb animals. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute, that's the work. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
oh, okay. So it was about following that intuition. Uh, just, just I had this intuition that I need to make moo-moos. And I think for me, it was a, in a way, oh, the best moments in my art career have happened when I've done something on an intuition. And what it really has been is clearing space and time for my brain to ping around and make mm. the connections that it needs to make. And that's what happened with Mox. So I just found out that that, that story was the work. And then you know, that, that nerdy love of, of science and documentaries and museums and, and that kind of aesthetic took over and I started to make uh, tons and tons of artifacts and, and fill in the story about the North American obese as an endangered species of bipedal ungulate mammals um, descended from giant manatees and sloths. Uh, with this huge backstory and I partnered with scientists and historians to really get the details right and to come up with the, the right um, scientific uh, taxonomies. And uh, then I started, I, yeah, kind of culminated. I started to do like life-size taxidermy models. Mm -hmm. And so when you walk into the Museum for Obese Conservation Studies, what I've tried to do is make it feel like you're walking into... Uh, a natural science or a natural history museum. So you've got the the past of the obese, the f the present of the obese as a overhunted uh, animal with habitat loss issues and and other things, and then the future, right? Because that's what natural history is: past, right. present, and future. So there's a interactive component where people can try, you know, register to become members for free to save the obese and sort of public awareness raising. I mean, take everything you've thought about with like saving the wolves or saving the whales or whatever, but just twist that on its head to be about a ridiculous animal, which by is me wearing a mumu. Right. That's Mox. So what visually, you, you, you said like the, um, the taxidermied uh, <laughs> version of yourself. What there, there are really are a variety of other visual yes. components. Um, yeah. I know there are photographs, there which are, are amazing. Are. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I work a lot with the, I've worked a lot with the Library of Congress to take photos. You know, it's important to me to locate the obese in our American history. Mm -hmm. So uh, I take Library of Congress photos, especially my favorite ones are the ones where I've taken, like found old hunters standing over their dead deer. Right. And I just Photoshop the deer out and I pose myself and take a picture of myself sort of laying where I need it to be. And then I Photoshop myself into that old photo. Mm -hmm. And then I print them on aluminum and I present them as tintypes. Right. I mean, basically Mox is about creatively lying my ass off mm -hmm. um over and over again and that's that is it's just ridiculously fun to do so there's so there's photography that plays a part in it there is life-size taxidermy where i used alginate and plaster and uh and pourable uh foam to cast a life-size version of myself there are um lots and lots of didactics like educational signage that that goes along with it there's videos uh of all kinds uh one of the most sort of popular things was a video i did with some friends um about locating 
shooting an obese with a tranquilizer gun in order to fit it with a GPS collar mm -hmm. for the survival of the species, right? I mean, it's all for the good of, of the species, course. right? So I had friends pretend to shoot me with a tranquilizer gun and then fit me with a GPS collar and, mm -hmm. and then woke me up and I staggered away into the wilderness. Um, so yeah, so that was one of the things. Um, there are large like circus sideshow banners that mm. that fit in with the history of obese and the sideshow as uh, like man-eating obests and stuff like that. Uh, there are old uh, Native American uh, ceramic artifacts of like vases and right. pottery and stuff like that that depict the obese and. Native American history. Um, what else? Gosh, there's a taxidermied head. There's there's the full size taxidermy with a complete diorama of grass and and terrain and and all that stuff. Um, you know, it's it's and then the other thing is that mocks grow. It would grow every new venue it went to. So it went. It, at this point, it's traveled throughout the U.S. and Canada, and then uh, did Europe a bit. And then, um, so every every new place that it would go, I would have the main sort of core of the exhibit and then would adjust like a special feature of the exhibit to fit the town where it was going. So like when it went to Boston, I fitted it. Um, Boston has this history of like leather industry and shoes and raw materials being processed there. And there's the town is full of these old abandoned mills, mm. especially the surrounding areas of like Lawrence. So I, of course, I just retold the history of Boston to be uh, the history of processing obese leather. And so we worked with the local historical societies to like find old images of leather Fats. And I just photoshopped in some obese pelts mm -hmm. instead of the leather and um, just, yeah, so just sort of making it sort of relevant to where it's going. And If someone had that idea, it would be very easy to not do all the steps that you've done. I mean, <laughs> I, I think what's impressive is that you that you've got the look of, of everything. Like you said, the, the, the informational signage that you would see in a museum, but your skill at making these things is incredible. I mean, like the photographs and um, the taxidermied figure, all of that is just, I mean, that really that's what makes it work is the combination of the backstory research and these objects that you're making. I mean, it's pretty, Thanks. it's pretty amazing. Thanks. One thing that, um, and I'm not even sure how to address it. You're very open talking about your size. Yeah. It is. Because it's not a dirty word. Right. It's not. But it, it we are, or at least a portion of us yeah. are conditioned to not talk about things yeah. like that. Can we talk about it? Well, I, I, my point is, how difficult is it when you're in a conversation about it? for the other person to, <laughs> to like, do you ever think about that? That oh, sure. it's not, a, yeah. that it's difficult for someone to ask about someone else's size or their physical appearance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it comes up in, uh, in conversations at openings on a regular basis. Uh, my favorite was a, an opening in Atlanta where a woman came up to me and said, Oh gosh, well you must just really hate yourself. And I was like, why? Because, <laughs> you know, I don't I don't actually feel like I hate myself no, at all. No, I don't all. think you do. Um, I mean, the appropriate amount. 
but yeah, you of know, course, I mean, because otherwise I'd be a monster. <laughs> so this woman came up to me in Atlanta and she said, oh, you must really hate yourself. And I said, why? And she said, well, because you're, you're depicting yourself as, as, you know, as, as fat and, you know, and, and just sort of, you know, it's not, it's not glamorous. It's not beautiful. And the obese is, is not glamorous or beautiful. It's an alginate mold on my face and I don't put makeup on her. And she, her hair is a, you know, is a wig that I cut myself and it's a bit of a mess. And, um, you know, it's a scientific museum. There's no glamour. There's no glitz. There are photos of the obese, like, taken out in the field, you know, field work, mm -hmm. documenting the different uh, s specimens. And and usually, to you know, the backstory on the... I had to decide a long time ago that I could not be vain and do this project because mm. I'm not that good at photography that I can take good <laughs> photos. So what I do in the fields, is I, usually my art making is a, is a pretty solo process because mm -hmm. I, I like to really, it sounds kind of, it sounds nutty and it is a little nutty, but I, honestly, there is a headspace that I have to get into to become the obese. I am not an obese. I perform as an obese, right. but it really is a different, I, I'm not just out there like sitting on the ground as Rachel. I'm out there sitting on the ground as an obese. So when I do this, I have a, I have a clicker and I'll, you know, I try to hide it under like a piece of fern or something so it doesn't show up in the pictures. But sometimes I have, I have the clicker and sometimes that works just fine. But oftentimes, uh, and so I can like sit on the ground and like click, but you can only get like 15 feet away from the camera and do that. So usually what I do is I set the timer and I freaking run <laughs> to the spot that I've set out and like try to like just get in the spots where I'm focused on and do the thing that I have envisioned. It doesn't always, you know, they're just not real pretty. So this woman in Atlanta, she comes and she says, you must hate yourself because you've not portrayed yourself in a flattering light. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, because you're just, you're, you know, you're showing everyone how fat you are. And I was like, yeah, but, but that, that's actually reflecting way more on you and your opinions about fat than my own opinions about my fat. I'm pretty matter of fact about it. Right. And, you know, and that was, that was an interesting conversation because she, she was having all these emotional sympathy feelings for me about how horrible I must feel about myself. And, right. It's, it's always a mirror about the person than I was going to say, I mean, you would, you have to feel, um, you have to feel good about yourself or at least have a good sense of yourself in order to do a project like this. Any, any project that sort of involves yourself out there, I think you're, maybe I'm making this up, but, no. but I, I can't, I couldn't make pictures of myself and put them out there <laughs> you, you know I, and a lot of people can't put yeah. their, their themselves out there so you have to have a real sense of yourself to do something like that and I think you're right it does reflect on that woman more so than uh, yourself we're gonna take a little break and then we'll be right back with Rachel Herrick oh yeah <laughs> Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. It's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, 
and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk, that's right, chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers, it's chalk calling. Eat our dust. Hey everybody, it's time to get off your ass and go look at some art. And here's some of the things you might want to check out. Harriet Hoover, she's got a show at Waterworks Visual Arts Center that's in Salisbury, North Carolina. That show is from February 11th to May 20th, and it's called Mama Spacin' Again, Drawings and Sculpture. Check out Waterworks' website at waterworks.org. Heather Gordon, who was featured in our third episode has a new incredible installation in the basement gallery at 21C Durham. That's called Echo. Uh, Also a part of that is a performance piece by Justin Turnow, who is a local choreographer and dancer. She reacts to Heather's work in an incredible video. So go check that out. And now for some shameless plugs. I have work in an alumni invitational. That's at UNCW Art Gallery, and that runs from February 23rd through March 31st. That's in Wilmington, North Carolina, in the Art Building. I also am working on a collaborative piece along with Megan Sullivan. That will be at ArtSpace, and that will begin first Friday, March 3rd. Most importantly, we have a show by our own Warren Hicks called Eleven, and that takes place at The Cube at VAE Raleigh. That runs from February 22nd through April 8th. There will be First Friday receptions March 3rd and April 7th with an artist talk April 8th at 1.11 p.m. You can find out more information at Warren's website, which is warrenhicks.com, or at the exhibition website, 11.com. That's spelled E-1-E-V-1-N.com. And we're back. Oh, my. What a refreshing interlude. Oh, man. So uh, we've talked about mocks. Yeah. You also had, in the past year or so, this amazing show at the Flanders Gallery. (laughs) Um, Or I guess, was that on the lump side? It was on the lump side. Okay. At lump. I call it flump. Flump. I do. Okay. Yeah. It's a technical term. Insider. Mm. Yeah, that's you. (laughs) You're an insider. Oh, yeah. That was made, there were these images made with pepper spray. Yes, police-grade pepper spray. Tell tell me about that. Yeah. So it was, um, I did a series using police-grade pepper spray as as paint. Uh, pepper spray has a, a natural, it's the capsicum in it, it's pepper oil, so it's their orange. It's an orange spray. Um, the pieces themselves were different depictions of um, just sort of the... The difficulty of police brutality. It's not a cut and dry issue. Um, it's about the, the legacy of institutional racism and um, the way we talk about it. Uh, you know, it becomes a, a trending thing on Twitter for a while and then it dies down and we forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did these pepper spray paintings and. Um, I, again, it was working on an intuition. I was in Alberta, Canada with Mox, and I was out walking a lot, and there was a bear epidemic when I was there, and there were bears everywhere. And so every time I would go outside, they'd say, do you have your bear spray? Right. And I'm like, I don't, 
have bear spray. You people are crazy. I'm not going to walk around with bear spray. But it got me thinking about how people like in, in our sleepy little city of Raleigh, they walk around with bear spray. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's this, you know, this sort of loaded social, I don't know, like on the, ah, it's just, it's it's really, it's complicated. So anyway, I had bear, pepper spray on my mind. And so I just decided I wanted to start working with it as an art medium. So I got some police-grade pepper spray, which is the highest concentration of pepper spray goodness that you can get. And I tried it out, and I pepper sprayed the hell out of myself, and it was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The fun thing about pepper spray is that especially the that high of a concentration, it shuts down all of your voluntary muscle systems. Your whole body becomes one machine that is only focused on trying drawing breath. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the powerlessness that right. you experience. I had never experienced pepper spray. Mm. Um, so uh, so at th- that time, I was just sort of playing with uh, text paintings with pepper spray, using uh, media quotes and sort of affirmative uh, phrases. I was thinking of them as like pepper spray affirmations as a way to, um, that sort of clash of trying to feel okay with the world and uh, pepper spray and anxiety, like just that struggle to feel okay, Mm -hmm. um, just ongoingly. And then, uh, so this was in 2000 and I want to say 15, 14 maybe when I started. And, um, and then the police shootings started getting worse. And, you know, I, I just, I don't know, there was a, that, one, that one gentleman who, who died screaming that he couldn't breathe. Right. And... It, that just that that hit a note, and so I started to think about the pepper spray, and so I did this series of paintings for Flanders Lump, uh, for the show there, uh, depicting the uh, six seconds it took for someone to run away from the um, Walter Scott in South Carolina. It took six seconds for him to run away from the police and get shot six times and fall. Mm-hmm. It took 30 yards, and that also happens to be the exact length of that gallery. And so I did six. I did. There were other pieces in the show, but the main focus of the show was six uh, pepper spray drawings of still frames from the eyewitness video of the of of his shooting and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Yeah, so there was that. And there was sort of an interesting, I mean, so what I, I, I love art when I don't know how to do it. Right. And that's been true for Mox, and that's true for this, and, that, and that's also what I like about farming. Um, so I don't, le- I don't know how to do anything, but I like to figure it out. So, uh, so I did these layered um, sort of, I used like sort of like rubber cement as a masking fluid and then built layers of of density so they were monochromatic orange paintings but they had different levels of darkness of orange and the other fun thing about these pieces is that over time the chemicals in the pepper spray so not the capsicum itself which is pretty light solid uh, light fast but the other chemicals that they add to pepper spray to like kind of keep the oil from congealing and keep it aerosolable Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
those turn the paintings white. So they are very ephemeral works. So they will fade to white. And yet the fun thing is that they will never stop kicking your ass. <laughs> so uh, you, when you walk into the gallery at, at Lum Flanders, uh, it was, you know, the, I had gas masks available for people. The pieces had somewhat calmed down by the time, but, but handling them they were unframed works on paper mm-hmm. and they were very, very volatile. And so that was the experience of going into the gallery and having this work that was physically threatening the viewers, which is sort of like a artist dream, right? You felt good about it. I that. felt pretty good about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the other thing is that as they fade out and as this visual is, as, as the visuals go away, the sting is always there. Oh, I like that. So, um, so yeah, that's the pepper spray pieces. All right. Yeah, I can smell pepper spray a mile off now. Let me tell you, <laughs> I've gas my. I don't think I have ever worked. I got really good at protection, you know, like covering every bit of skin and respirators and covering my hair. And I think I still gas myself every single time. That's scary. I, yeah, I hope Chris uh, Vitiello talked about getting gassed at my studio. A little bit. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> it was a fun day. Everyone wants to gas an art critic, right? Of course. Right? Come that on. Was rewarding. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, Chris. So uh, your other non-farming day job is <gasps> at the VAE, and I put a V in front of it, which I'm not <laughs> supposed to. It's at VAE. Yeah, VAE Raleigh. VAE yeah. Raleigh. <laughs> Yeah, we like to uh, we like to joke that saying the VAE is like saying the Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, we don't really care that much. <laughs> Not really. We just like to pretend we do. Yeah. So that's my that is my my day job my my part time day job in the big city. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Making and miracles happen. And you're really involved, or you oversee the Ignite conference. Oh. So one of the so my title is the director of initiatives, and basically what that means is that. I pay attention to what artists need currently, and I figure out ways that our programming can address those needs. I'm troublemaker in chief, Mm -hmm. basically, or that's what I like to say. (laughs) My business cards don't say that. I wish they did. Um, Right. So, yeah, so Ignite is a a big part of that. Ignite is there's a summit that happens once a year. The last three years it's happened in June, but I think this year we're moving it to April <gasps> because everyone goes on vacation in June. That's probably true. And uh, we also we want to get more of the college community involved, and uh, mm-hmm. so we want to do it when school's in session. But yeah, so that's a two day summit where we bring in. Uh, exciting uh, people sort of around a theme. So last year's theme was home and it was about the ways that being connected to your community can make you a better artist and the ways that having artists connected can make communities better as well. It's a real reciprocal process. So we brought in uh, Vanessa German from Pittsburgh, who's an amazing artist, a citizen artist is what she calls herself. And she started to make work in um, home, is it Homewood, I believe it's Homewood in Pittsburgh, which is a rough neighborhood with a very high murder rate. And the neighborhood kids would see her like out working on her porch or they, you know, they'd peek in windows or whatever, but they knew that there was this like 
like fancy lady with like amazing, you know, like she wears these amazing necklaces that you, you just want to touch. They're like shells and buttons and they're like huge and amazing. But the kids were fascinated by her. And so they started to come around and be like, Miss Vanessa, can we like touch your stuff? And she's like, hell no, go away. Because she's a human being and she's a badass. And then eventually the kids kept being like, but could I just touch this one little, could I just paint like this one thing? And they just kept pushing their way in. And so she inadvertently ended up sort of creating a place for these kids to have an outlet and to get a sense of community and self-worth and whatever. And then all of a sudden her very rough neighborhood, like the crime rate is, is going down and kids are doing better in school. And and uh, and her art career, in turn, also starts to really thrive. She's mm-hmm. getting uh, good media attention for her community work, but also she's making this amazing sculpture, so she gets picked up by a gallery in New York. And, you know, it's just, it, it is that, that thing that happens when artists can give to their communities, their communities give back. And uh, at VAE, we really believe in owning your role in your community and grabbing your career by the horns and making it what you want it to be and understanding that art and creativity is a lifestyle and a life choice. It's not, it's not watercolor on paper. It's not oil on canvas. It's, you know, it, it's a lifestyle. And at the core of it needs to be generosity if you want to be successful. And it's one of the only fields in the world, I feel like, that 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 is so true for right. but it's it's just true mm-hmm. so so that's sort of ignite 2016 that and was, it was a, an amazing talk thank you she was an amazing oh yeah yeah she was amazing and then we followed that up with a day of panel discussions and and talks uh from other people working more regionally engaging with their communities and um making making change through creativity. And we heard from the Hidden Voices Project, and they take voices that are otherwise usually marginalized uh, in the community, and they bring them to the attention of the of the public using creativity like theater, dance, music, art. Yeah, so Hidden Voices was there. The city of Wilson was there. They used... Uh, Wallace Simpson Whirligig Park in Wilson uh, totally transformed the city of Wilson with a, a grant from the the NEA and brought these Whirligigs into the heart of the community and this once you know struggling little agricultural town all of a sudden found itself with a a big creative heart and a tourist attraction and then so. Right you know, it revitalized that city. So anyway, so that was sort of Ignite 2016 was showing the ways that creativity is makes artists and home better. And and have you figured out what this next year is going to oh, be? Oh, I can't tell you. Oh, I can't damn it. tell I you. We I can't get tell a you. Sneak I can't tell. I know. Peak. I want I would love to tell you, but I can't. Damn. It's going to be great. It's going to be so I'll, great. I won't tell Warren, I promise. Here's the thing. I think he's listening. Damn it. Well, um, thank you, Rachel Herrick, for your amazing uh, interview. Oh, golly, is it all done? I think it is. I want to stay forever and bask in your vision. Mm. And uh, where can our listeners find your artwork online? Well, golly, you can go to my website, rachelherrick.com, R-A-C-H-E-L-H-E-R-R-I-C-K.C-O-M. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and, and... I'm sorry about Warren. Yeah. 
I love you, Warren. Chris Vitiello recently visited the studio to talk about today's guest, Rachel Herrick. Here's what he had to say. I've had some really wonderful experiences around Rachel Herrick's work that aren't aren't just you know going to going to a gallery in space and seeing the work. I got to take uh, when she had her show of her sort of obese work at the Fland the old Flanders Gallery in their old space mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. I got to take a middle school class there. Oh wow! And um, you know, kind of give them an assignment to look at things. So I got to see how middle school boys and girls react very differently to the obese body of work. I it bet. G- gave a sort of a new take for me about uh, about gender, uh, obesity, and just uh, the ability to access facetiousness in that environment. You know, mm-hmm. the girls got it. The boys didn't. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Um, but then also, uh, you know, Rachel has uh, pretty recently been doing um, paintings with pepper spray um, and not just your pepper spray that you get like at the CVS. Uh, mm-hmm. This is this is, you know, police grade pepper spray. That's, uh, you know, you're not actually supposed to really be able to get a hold of this stuff. Right. Uh, she's going out in the area you know, outdoors, because you can't use it indoors, uh, outdoors and doing pepper spray paintings with it. So I spent a little bit of an afternoon with her shooting pepper spray at, at uh, you know, prepared surfaces and um, uh, with our respirators and gas masks and everything on. And of course, we ended up like pepper spraying ourselves <laughs> right. to some extent while we were doing the work. It, was, it was, ended up being a lot of fun after we coughed and gagged for uh, 20 minutes. So Right, yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Pretty exciting stuff. She's a fearless artist. She is. Uh, she's an artist that just doesn't pull punches. I think she gets an idea and she kind of hones it yeah. uh, until it has uh, sort of no pretensions and no uncertainty in it. Um, th- that decisiveness just comes through in the work. But but I think it also makes people a little uncomfortable. I mean, the pepper spray paintings, when they're on display, uh, if you get close up to them, you you can you can smell it and mm-hmm. I mean you don't just smell it you feel it in your eyes a little bit and everything it's not like it hurts you but right. but that's that's something that a lot of artists would figure out how to like surface it so you wouldn't smell it I saw another artist's work uh, just yesterday that involves a lot of tar stuck my nose an inch away from it and couldn't smell it because you know he'd he'd yeah. done something so you wouldn't have this tar smell in there but Herrick is different she wants you to have that full experience she and, does and that's that's important to her. Great. Thank you, Chris. Oh, sure. Be sure to listen to our next episode for an interview with our very own Warren Hicks. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well. <laughs>